Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Amy Ziegert on Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the current events and politics or technology category for episode number 130 with Nicole Perlroth on This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. This is Nicole Perlroth. My book is called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Amy B. Ziegert is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University, a contributing writer for The Atlantic and an author. Her newest book is titled Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. Amy, thank you so much for the time today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. So what was your goal with Spies, Lies, and Algorithms? Well, the goal changed. So originally it was supposed to be an intelligence 101 kind of a textbook. And it started off in a class I taught at UCLA. And I found out my students really didn't know anything about intelligence and what they knew they learned from the movies. And then the world changed. So the goal now is also to provide an intelligence 2.0 view of how technology is transforming everything about the intelligence business. I guess considering the events of the last 24 plus hours now, it would probably be smart to start at the end versus the beginning and maybe work our way backwards because uh, we are speaking on uh, the day, I guess, that Russia has officially uh, invaded Ukraine in a major way, uh, striking Ukraine by land, by sea, and by air. And U.S. Intel has been suggesting for a little while now uh, that this was something that was imminent. For you as somebody who studies intelligence, uh, what does all of this mean to you right now? Well, I think it means a couple things. Number one, our intelligence was really good. I mean, it was pinpointing exactly the time, the place, the manner, detailed information coming out of a, what looks like a range of different intelligence sources. But the second thing that's really significant about the intelligence in this particular conflict is how public it was. This is new. So the Biden administration released more intelligence about Russian false flag operations. I remember the phony pretext for invasion of a doctored video suggesting Ukrainian genocide and the like. And this is a totally new strategy. And I think it's designed for an information warfare world. So until now, Vladimir Putin had falsehood get out of the gate first. And now with truth out of the gate first, it's been inoculating the public to understand that Putin's gonna lie about the pretext for invasion. And that's significant. It also makes it much harder for third party countries like China to tacitly assist or to sit by because we've exposed now the false narrative that Putin was going to provide or has been trying to provide. So even though it's a, it's a terrible day, it's a terrible moment for the world with this aggression, the use of intelligence, I think, will be a new strategy that's likely to stay. You obviously talk a lot about cyber warfare, which has become a hugely important front over the last 10 to 15 years or so. And we have seen reports that cyber warfare was going to be a part of uh, what Russia is trying to do and has done in the Ukraine and how uh, other countries may try to combat what it is that Russia is doing uh, in their neighboring country. Uh, just how involved do you think the cyber warfare element will be in terms of other countries stopping the uh, stopping Russia from advancing into Ukraine and possibly beyond. 
Well, I think cyber warfare has been a part of the Russian playbook for a long time. So, and Ukraine has been the test bed for the Russians with respect to cyber. So I think most people don't know, but you know, Vladimir Putin turned out the power in Ukraine in 2015 and 2016 through a cyber attack. So he's been doing this kind of stuff for a long time. The question is, what are we gonna do in cyberspace? And we probably won't know because those kinds of operations are usually so highly classified. But we've already seen public service announcements essentially from uh, the US government saying, be careful, right? Because we expect an increase in cyber attacks emanating from Russia as part of this operation. Do you worry that US Intel was slow to realize the overall threat of cyber warfare 10 to 15 years ago and properly prepare itself to uh, act uh, whenever this does become such a focal point of conflicts like this? I think the evidence suggests that our intelligence agencies were slow to understand one particular element of cyber warfare, and that's mass deception with online capabilities. So, you know, in our intelligence agencies, it's been publicly reported, they did see the Russian foreign election interference in 2016. They saw many elements of that campaign. The one thing they never saw coming was Russia's use of social media, those fake uh, Facebook accounts and masquerading as Americans. And so you can see we're really struggling to deal with this disinformation and kind of information warfare part of cyber, that we understood the threat to machines. What we didn't appreciate was the threat to hacking our minds. And that's an ongoing challenge. And obviously, Washington, D.C., combating cyber warfare involves a partnership with Silicon Valley. And you point out in this book that that has been a, a rocky relationship, to say the least. What needs to improve the most between D.C. and Silicon Valley in order to boost our capabilities to the necessary levels within cyber warfare? Well, I think the first thing that needs to improve, and it is improving, is trust. So several years ago, trust between big tech companies in Silicon Valley and the US government was terrible. This is the aftermath of the Edward Snowden revelation. So the former NSA contractor that revealed that the National Security Agency was conducting a number of activities, including activities that tech companies didn't know about that involved their data. And so it was bad in sort of 2014, 2015. And as I recount in the book, you know, I took a group of congressional staffers to a major tech company in 2014, and a senior tech executive pointed at them and he said, I think of you as the enemy, just like I think of the People's Liberation Army of China. I'm trying to keep you, the US government, out of my systems every day. Talk about trust problems. That's better now, and largely because of the China threat has brought those two sides closer together. But there's a lot more building that needs to be done. These two sides of the country don't understand each other. They use different words. So I often say Pentagon people in particular come out here to California where I am and they like to use D words, defeat, destroy, degrade, dominate. But entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley like to use C words, create, collaborate, right, change. And so there's a cultural mismatch as well as a trust deficit that I think both sides are trying hard to overcome. Hmm. All right, we're going to rewind now all the way to the beginning of U.S. intelligence operations. Despite the popular belief, as you point out in your book, George Washington did, in fact, lie. What are some <laughs> of the deceptive links that he went through in gaining a leg up militarily? George Washington was a great liar, actually, and we should be glad that he was a great liar. So one of my favorite parts of researching this book was looking more deeply at the Revolutionary War. 
What Washington did was he used intelligence cleverly to avoid fighting the British when his troops were weak. And so in that famous winter of Valley Forge where his troops were starving and dying, Washington wrote fake accounts of inflated regiments that he designed to fall into enemy hands to convince the British his forces were in fact too strong to attack. If the British had attacked the Continental Army that winter at Valley Forge, we might not have won the Revolutionary War. And perhaps my favorite use of deception that Washington employed was French bread to win the revolution. So he used French bake ovens and positioned them in a way to convince the British in New York that his army was staying close to New York when in fact he marched them 200 miles south where he ended up uh, laying siege to um, Cornwallis at Yorktown. And that was the last decisive battle of the war. So were it not for French bread, we might not have a United States today. How had intel gathering methods evolved by the Civil War? You know, one of the interesting patterns is after this amazing use of intelligence in the revolution, intelligence really languished. And after Washington left the presidency, there really weren't good intelligence capabilities. And so by the time we got to the Civil War, both sides actually were pretty bad at using intelligence and pretty disorganized with how they used it. And we didn't end up having a robust intelligence capability, peacetime intelligence capability, until after World War II, which is relatively recent in U.S. history. Yeah, and prior to World War II, uh, it was interesting to learn that the Secret Service and FBI were actually responsible for countering espionage during World War I, considering that they are longstanding rivals, and that was apparently the case during this time as well. Were they good at countering espionage and war. Not particularly, no. And, and they ended up stepping over each other a lot. And then they ended up violating civil liberties. So the first Red Scare was really a dark time for our domestic intelligence agencies. They rounded up people and deported many people because there was such suspicion about foreigners in the United States being communists or being saboteurs or being subversives. And it was really an extra legal or illegal set of operations. And was a really dark chapter in the history of American intelligence agencies. How did the attack on Pearl Harbor shape US intelligence? Pearl Harbor really changed everything. And so before the attack on Pearl Harbor, we had a number of intelligence agencies in the military and the State Department, and they had detected the signals of the Japanese attack, but nobody put all those signals together. And that's why we had this devastating surprise attack in 1941. And so after Pearl Harbor, a few things happened. Number one, the US became a central power in the world. And so we needed a greater intelligence capability that accorded that, that could support our, our position in the world. But the second thing was there was a real realization that we needed a new intelligence agency that would be central, that would centralize this information, hence the name the Central Intelligence Agency. And so CIA grew out of that Pearl Harbor failure and the sort of thinking was never again should we be caught so much by surprise. So the CIA's primary mission has always been looking over the horizon, coordinating intelligence to prevent what they call strategic surprise. And Congress created the CIA in 1947. What was their stated purpose at that time and how quickly did it deviate into something completely different, Amy? Well, you raise such a great point, which is that the CIA we know today is not the CIA Congress thought they were creating back in 1947. And it certainly wasn't what Harry Truman had in mind. 
Originally, the Central Intelligence Agency was supposed to be kind of a small coordinating unit, more of a global clipping service. The law that created it did not say that it was supposed to collect intelligence on its own, which it does. It collects human intelligence or runs spies in foreign countries. And it didn't mention covert action at all. So the CIA, as originally envisioned, wasn't supposed to conduct covert action. But it quickly did, just a year after it was created, President Truman decided that he needed to funnel money to uh, the Christian Democrats in the Italian election so the communists wouldn't win. And that was the beginning of a whole new chapter in the Central Intelligence Agency's history. And so that was the start of its covert action involvement. And American intelligence really evolved uh, through three different circumstances after this. You just alluded to one, getting much better at collecting and analyzing info. Presidents also started creating more agencies to make up for the CIA's shortcomings. And it was learned uh, that certain intelligence agencies, more specifically the CIA, were guilty of some serious abuses uh, during the 1970s. Uh, What impact did Frank Church and his famous church committee have on the CIA and other intel communities? So I think the church committee had a significant impact. You know, that committee did a remarkable investigation and and it was public. They held public hearings. They issued an unclassified report. And what they found was rampant domestic spying by the CIA, the FBI, and the National Security Agency. You know, opening mail, intercepting telegrams, infiltrating dissident groups, anti-war groups, civil rights groups, all illegally. And they also found excesses abroad. So, you know, your listeners may remember there are some crazy schemes to kill Fidel Castro, the leader of Cuba, poisoning his um, his uh, beard powder, exploding seashells and poison cigars. These were all real uh, uh, operations to try to assassinate him. And so after the church committee, there was an executive order that officially banned political assassinations. Now there's a big debate about what that means exactly and who's in or who's out of that executive order. But by law now, the CIA is not allowed to assassinate foreign leaders. That's a big change. And the second big change after church was we actually have oversight committees in the Congress now. Now they don't work particularly well, but it's a lot better oversight than we had before the 1970s. When the oversight committee does work well, what what exactly does that mean? That's such a good question. You know, I think oversight really has to do several things. The first, which we usually think about, is oversight committees have to make sure our intelligence agencies are abiding by the law, and they generally do that well. But the second thing they have to do is they have to make sure that intelligence agencies are effective. And our committees are not good at doing that because they get rewarded for jumping in when scandals erupt after the fact, rather than preventing those problems from happening in the first place. They don't get rewarded for doing that That you know, work before things get bad. And then the third thing they have to do, and I think they haven't done a very good job at, is they have to be ambassadors to the American people. These secret agencies can't say much about what they do, but the congressional intelligence committees can. They have classified briefings, they can hold unclassified hearings, and they're in a unique position to reassure the American people about what our agencies are doing and whether they're being held accountable. And they don't do that nearly enough. Why is new technology adding to the difficulty of congressional oversight? Well, if you think about overseeing anything, the more information you have, the better questions you can ask and the better results you're going to get. Well, now imagine that critical intelligence issues involve real technological challenges like encryption or quantum computing 
or artificial intelligence. You know, the last time I checked, there were only three engineers in the entire US Senate. There are more doctors in Congress than there are engineers. There are more powdered milk experts in Congress than there are intelligence experts. And what that means is Congress can't ask really good questions because they don't have the expertise to ask those questions. And if they can't ask good questions, they can't demand better performance, particularly with respect to technology, which is so important. The intelligence agency's relationships with one another has always been dysfunctional. Why did they, this get so much worse after the Cold War ended all the way through the catastrophe that was 9-11? Well, you know, we started off with a handful of agencies in our intelligence community, and every time there's a failure or a problem, the natural impulse is to create a new agency. And what that means is over time, we got more and more agencies and coordination became more and more difficult. And so, you know, before 9-11, I wrote a book about 9-11 and why the FBI and the CIA failed. And one of the chief challenges, and the 9-11 Commission found this too, was the inability, the unwillingness to share information even when they needed to share it. And in the, before 9-11 in the 90s, the FBI and the CIA knew they needed to collaborate more. And so they tried uh, swapping uh, senior leaders in their counterterrorism units. And insiders referred to this program as the hostage exchange program. That gives you some sense of just how unnatural it was to work collaboratively together. It was a huge weakness before 9-11. Chapter four of Spies, Lies, and Algorithms is Intelligence Basics. You quoted then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld during a 2002 press briefing who tried to explain the limits of intelligence with the Iraq War by paraphrasing Sherman Kent, the founding father of the CIA's analytic branch. Rumsfeld described three types of information that decisions have to be made around. No knowns or indisputable facts known unknowns or known information that we don't quite know ourselves yet, and unknown unknowns or things that nobody knows. How does that third information type factor into decisions? Yeah, you know, people, Rumsfeld got a bum rap for his response at that press conference, and people criticized him. They put his Rumsfeld poetry to music, but he really was onto something important. That third category, the unknown unknowns, is really the challenge for U.S. intelligence agencies. And it really has to get to intentions or things that no one knows the answer to. And so the example I give in the book is, um, how long will China's Communist Party remain in power? Now, if you were to ask Chinese leader Xi Jinping that question, he would not be able to answer it, right? It's an unknown unknown. Um, what are Vladimir Putin's intentions with respect to NATO? Putin may not know the answer to that question, or his intentions may change depending on what we do in response to his incursion in Ukraine. And so intelligence agencies have to assess these unknown unknowns, and that's inherently difficult because there's so much uncertainty. We don't know our own intentions often, and so it's really hard to get into the intentions of other people. Is intelligence inherently secretive, Amy? Yes and no. So part of intelligence is inherently secretive, but increasingly intelligence or information that gives policymakers insight is publicly available. It's online, it's on Twitter, it's in the open domain. And that's increasingly the name of the game to providing insight. Do intel agencies make or secretively influence policy? 
You know, I had a really interesting conversation that was recorded at the Hoover Institution just this week with Condi Rice, who knows a thing or two about policy, serving as former National Security Advisor, former Secretary of State. And her argument to me was intelligence officials actually influence policy, whether they think they do or not. So the intelligence side of this would say, and intelligence officials would say, our job is not to make policy. We give intelligence and the policymakers decide what to do with it and what course of action they're going to take. But as Condi mentioned in our conversation, when you analyze something, when you highlight something in the president's daily brief, for example, that highly classified intelligence report the president gets, you're setting the agenda. You're giving ammunition for some policymakers to focus on some things over other policymakers. And so intelligence officials may not think they make policy, but they absolutely do shape policy. Intelligence officers and officials come from a variety of backgrounds. Do they typically share any one defining quality, though? I think if I had to pick one thing they share, it's a commitment to country. So one of the things that's different about intelligence officers compared to military officers and military personnel is they have to serve in silence. They have to serve in secret. And so they take many of the same risks that our military does, but we don't know about it. And their activities and their sacrifices uh, may be classified long after they die. So in the CIA, there's this incredible memorial wall that I describe in the book. It's really a sacred space in the agency. And there's a star for every CIA officer who was killed in the line of duty. And there are many stars on that wall that have no names in the Book of Honor because those people are still classified. Their names are classified long after they've died. Hmm. Ethical dilemmas are obviously a part of the job. Is there a good example that comes to your mind of such a quandary causing an agent to have to flat out abandon a mission? So I interviewed a number of intelligence officials for this book because I didn't want to just analyze the community from the outside. I wanted intelligence officers to talk about some of these things like their ethical dilemmas in their own words. And one former case officer at the CIA, you know, the clandestine service, which is the job is to recruit spies in foreign countries, described an ethical dilemma to me. And he said he had a junior officer, they were posted in a foreign country. And the officer came to him and he said, you know, I'm not really comfortable manipulating someone to try to recruit them to become a source for the CIA. And Bill Phillips, the guy that I interviewed, his boss said, you know, these are really important ethical considerations. It's really important you think them through, but you can't do it here. I need to send you home. You have to be willing to manipulate people. That's the job. And if you're not willing to do it and do it without reservation, then you need to think about a different line of work. That was sort of the ethical dilemma of, it's okay to question what you do, but not when you're in country, when you're putting other lives at risk. Critical thinking is obviously another hugely important part of the job. And that sometimes means learning how to forget years, if not decades of learned knowledge in order to truly find the truth. How has finding bin Laden an important lesson in this? So the bin Laden operation is such an interesting example because so much has been declassified. You know, the failures in intelligence are often well known and I write a lot about them, but the successes really are. This is a case where we learn, we know a lot about what happened in that hunt. And it's a really interesting example of how analysts had to, just as you suggested in the question, get rid of their assumptions. Everything that they assumed about how bin Laden would hide turned out to be wrong. 
So they thought he was going to hide in the mountains between Afghanistan and Pakistan, because that's where he's comfortable. He spent a lot of time there. It, he had done that before. Turns out, of course, he was hiding in a city, right? Hiding off the grid, on the grid, in plain sight. So they had to remove that assumption. They assumed he'd have a lot of security because he always had. He had almost no security. They assumed he wouldn't be with his family members. So they weren't looking for telltale trails about where his family was. He was with family members. And so what the bin Laden raid and the hunt suggests is that bin Laden completely changed what they call his tradecraft, how he thought about hiding. And it wasn't until analysts actually jettisoned all those original assumptions, which were reasonable assumptions, they had to jettison them all to then pick up the clues to the trail that ultimately led to that compound in Pakistan. Fascinating. And you did a great job of uh, breaking all of that down. Highly recommend people check the book out for many of reasons, including that one. Chapter five is why analysis is so hard. You detail the predictability spectrum where there's a sliding scale where predictions go from easier with things like predicting sports outcomes to harder. And that means predictions like intelligence analysis. There are four key factors with making decisions, data, asymmetrical information, the swiftness and clarity of an outcome, and efforts to conceal what someone is doing and deceive the other side. What do you mean by asymmetrical information? So one of the things that makes it easier to predict sports contests, for example, by the way, this was a great excuse for me to delve into basketball, which is what I love, <laughs> having grown up in Kentucky. But one of the reasons that sports predictions are easier is everyone pretty much has the same information. You know the win-loss record of your favorite teams. You know the uh, free throw shooting percentage of all the players on the team. It's available to anyone. That is not true in intelligence. Different information is available to different people. Adversaries are trying to hide what's actually going on. So there's asymmetry between countries. And then there's asymmetry between agencies in the US government. So we talked before about how agencies don't like to share very much. Well, what that means is bits and pieces of vital intelligence are often marooned in different bureaucracies. And so everyone doesn't have the same picture most of the time. And that impedes intelligence analysis too. Much easier to predict the NCAA bracket than it is anything in national security. Yeah, you know, not to veer too far off the path here, but I feel like sports, as somebody who works in sports radio, that's my day job, is uh, starting to deal with the effects of uh, information overload, where stats are becoming so complex now, it's almost harming your ability to understand what may be about to happen. Whether we're talking about sports or the intelligence community, where is that line where a treasure trove of information goes from robust to so much that it clouds your ability to, to properly read a situation. Yeah, it can be overwhelming. And I think intelligence analysts are being crushed by the amount of information that's coming through. So we know that the amount of data on earth is doubling about every two years. I mean, that's just an extraordinary rate of data accretion. I think with, you know, one of the benefits for sports pundits is that you have good feedback loops. You can know whether your predictions were accurate or not based on whether the team won or not. But intelligence analysts don't even have that. Like, when is a win a win, right? <laughs> and, and it can change this year, next year, 10 years from now. And if you don't know when a win is a win, it's even harder to make sense of all that data. So I think data overload is something we all are grappling with. And it's and even more so for intelligence analysts. Predictions can falter from what you call the seven deadly biases. Love that. Confirmation bias, optimization bias, availability bias, 
the fundamental attribution error, mirror imaging, framing biases, and groupthink. Is groupthink a big problem for Intel organizations when they make decisions? It can be, and you know, the Iraq WMD failure, which is one of the big intelligence failures of the past couple decades, really stemmed for many reasons, but one of the big ones was groupthink. And people tend to think groupthink is just when groups think alike, but it's a particular psychological process where when a group is really stressed, when the stakes are very high, their need to conform becomes overwhelming. And so they seek that comfort in conformity when what they really should be doing is finding comfort dissent, airing those dissenting views. And so what we saw with Iraq WMD is that the dissenting views got discounted. There were dissents from the State Department and from the Department of Energy about that estimate, that famous estimate that was dead wrong, and they were buried. And so there was a real pressure to have a conformist view of Iraq's WMD programs, and that view was wrong. So the question then becomes, how do these intelligence agencies uh, avoid these seven deadly biases? You point out that how a problem is presented can actually help. What exactly does this mean? So it's a cautionary tale about how you present information can be perceived in completely different ways. And I do this exercise in my class that I did when I taught with Dr. Rice um, where we, we call it the beauty pill exercise. So imagine I gave you a beauty pill and I said, you know, this pill is 99.9% .9 safe. And if you take this pill, you'll look the best you've ever looked for the rest of your life. And then I asked, we asked the class, how many of you would take the pill? And all the hands go up. And then we say, well, now what if we told you that if you took this beauty pill, you would look the best you've ever looked for the rest of your life, but there's a one in 1000 chance you'll drop dead right here, right now. <laughs> How many of you would take the pill now? And now the hands all go down. Statistically speaking, they're exactly the same, 99.9% .9 safe and one in 1,000 chance of dying. But how you present information changes how we perceive it. Just out of curiosity, are your personal conversations with Condoleezza, are they 99.9% .9 college sports and 0.1%? <laughs> intelligence? <laughs> it depends on the sports season. I would say in football season, it's a higher percentage than non-football season. That's fair. Sports uh, super forecasters are those who are much better than the average person at predicting the future. What's their secret here, Amy? Well, this is such interesting research that a colleague of mine at Penn named Phil Tetlock has spent years, 20 years uh, investigating. And what Phil Tetlock found was people who are super forecasters aren't better educated than the rest of us. They're not better at numbers than the rest of us, but they have two unique traits or unusual traits. Number one, they can see a problem from multiple perspectives. So you think about how we usually have groups in order to get that divergence of perspectives. Super forecasters themselves can see multiple perspectives or angles on a problem. So that's the first thing they do that's different. The second thing they do is they update based on new information. Most of us stick, we're wedded to our prior beliefs and we discount new information if it doesn't confirm those beliefs. But super forecasters are much better at saying, wow, you know, this information is new. How do I rethink or update my analysis of what's likely to happen? They're really good at that. Gets back to confirmation bias. Is artificial intelligence better at analysis than humans are, especially in 2022 when uh, things have become so digitized? In some areas, AI is a lot better. And in some areas, AI is a lot worse. Hmm. So it depends. So in areas where the past looks like the future 
And there's a lot of data that you can train an algorithm on, right? Like, is this a picture of a bicycle or a baby? You train the algorithms on lots and lots and lots of pictures of bicycles and babies, and then it learns and it can identify the difference, right? So in pattern recognition cases where there's a lot of data, AI is amazing and it can work 80 times faster than a human can at sifting through that information. AI is really bad at instances that is uh, where there's not a lot of data. So will Iran develop a nuclear weapon? The total number of cases in the world of countries with nuclear weapons is 10. AI is not gonna help you answer that question. And AI can't tell you how it gets to the answer that it does. So for intelligence, that's really important because imagine going to the president and saying, Mr. President, we believe with high confidence, China is about to invade Taiwan. And the president says, how do you know? And you say, the algorithm told me. <laughs> right? It's not very compelling because the AI can't explain how it gets the outcomes that it does, but humans can. It's reassuring as somebody who uh, sometimes worries that we're entering a Terminator 2 phase of human history. <laughs> no, right. don't worry about Skynet. <laughs> Chapter 6, that's good. Chapter 6 is counterintelligence. What exactly is counterintelligence? Counterintelligence is both protecting our own intelligence from adversaries and trying to penetrate their intelligence organizations and information for our gain. And how is counterintelligence most beneficial when it's done well? Well, when it's done well, it means that we're protecting our own sources and methods. So uh, our foreign governments can't come and steal information about what we're up to. But it also means if we penetrate a foreign intelligence service, we have a much better sense of how they operate, who they're trying to recruit, what information they have. So there's a defensive component to counterintelligence. Think of the guards and the gates and all the stuff you see in the movies to protect uh, facilities. And there's an offensive side to counterintelligence. How do we penetrate a foreign intelligence service to gum up their works, make them doubt themselves and understand how it is that they operate? You point out in Spies, Lies, and Algorithms that it's pretty well established uh, at this point that polygraphs really aren't that reliable. So why do intelligence communities still use lie detector tests? It's a question I ask myself a lot. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the answer that I've heard from intelligence officials is even though they know the science isn't there to support polygraphs, they, there are failures on both sides. People can fool the polygraph when they're lying and people telling the truth can be detected to be lying when they're not. So they're bad on both dimensions. Why do they use them? There's a deterrent value. If you know you're gonna be polygraphed and you might get caught out on a lie, you'll think twice about lying and you might not want to apply for a government job or something like that. So they say there's deterrent value, but I really question the use of polygraphs today. Why did former CIA director Michael Hayden refer to his regular counterintelligence briefings as, quote, the most depressing 90 minutes on my calendar? <laughs> I think because, and Hayden has a way with words, it's because when you're talking about counterintelligence, you have to think about who's betraying you. Who were the trusted insiders that are violating your trust and turning into traitors? And that's a very depressing thing to think about when you have to, when you've invested so much in this trusted world of people who have gone through their polygraphs and gotten security clearances, and you think they're on your team, and in fact, they're supporting the enemy. And so it's very unnerving, right, when there's a colleague who's betraying that trust in a very serious way. The reasons why a person flips and starts working for the bad guys are mostly obvious, with money and ideology being the most common. Is there a surprising reason that someone flipped that you've uncovered uh, throughout your years of studying intelligence? 
No, not so much. I mean, it's the usual combination of things, but the relative importance of these motives has changed over time. You know, there's a little organization in the Defense Department that's collected a lot of data about all Americans in the past 60 years or so that have been charged with espionage related crimes. And they looked at the motives of those people. And they found that in the Cold War, the primary motive most often was money. And the second motive was usually ideology. There's also ego involved. A lot of disgruntled people like to have the ego of tricking their former bosses in the intelligence community. But that money and ideology, number one and number two, has flipped. Now ideology or divided loyalties is more often the number one motive and money is secondary. So that's a change since the end of the Cold War. Why do you think that flipped? I don't know. You know, it could be because the threat landscape is so much more complex today. It's not just the Soviet Union as the principal threat. There's so many other countries and so many other intelligence services that are coming after us. I think that's most likely the explanation. Hmm. Counterintelligence faces three challenges, trust, paranoia, and technology. How did technology help create a U.S. counterintelligence crisis in China about a decade ago? This is a really interesting story. So we know that what's been publicly reported is that our human intelligence network, those spies on the ground in China, was blown several years ago, really blown. Many of our sources were executed. uh, Others were imprisoned. Uh, And so it was really, as one intelligence official put it, turned to ash. Why? Well, it looks like from public reporting uh, by Zach Dorfman and others that there was a penetration of the computer system that enabled CIA officers to communicate with their sources on the ground in China. There was a temporary system that was set up to communicate with people as they were being recruited, so they weren't already on the rolls of CIA assets. But there was a breach in that firewall and that technical system so that the Chinese were able to penetrate the communication system between CIA officers and all of their assets on the ground in China. And there's some question about whether other countries have been able to penetrate that system as well. So technology can create new vulnerabilities in counterintelligence. Chapter seven is on covert action. Why is covert action one of the most contentious, if not the most contentious topic of conversation in the intelligence community? Well, I think as covert action, as we typically understand it is, as Mike Hayden likes to say, edgy, right? It's at the bounds of what people think or what they're comfortable with. You know, covert action is often the realm of last resort. And so when we think about violent activities like regime overthrows and paramilitary operations. That's one part. It's not the entire gamut of covert action, but it's the part we tend to focus on when things go bad. Covert action rarely works because it's hard to begin with. It's the best bad option that presidents have. And so we often hear about failures too, because it's just so hard to do. You started this chapter with a quote from former CIA head, Michael Morell, who said, are some covert actions effective? Yes but most are not. Do you agree or disagree with him and why? I do agree with him, but it raises the question, if most covert actions are not effective, why do presidents use them so much? And what I found is the answer really hinges on three things. Number one, all presidents want an option between going to war and doing nothing. And covert action is in between. So it it gives them a tool that they have to use when things are, are challenging. The second, I think, which we don't often think about is feasibility. So when 
we had a covert action to aid the Mujahideen in Afghanistan after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, huge covert action to funnel arms to the Mujahideen. The Soviets knew we were doing it. We knew that the Soviets knew they were doing it. Um, but we kept that action covert because it made it feasible, because it meant that third party countries like Pakistan and Egypt, which were helping us, could do so under the cloak of covert action. So that feasibility component, sometimes you can only have an action that's feasible if it's officially covert and not overt. And then the third reason is related to the second, that plausible deniability, right? What makes a covert action covert isn't that it's a dirty deed, is that the US government denies official involvement. That's the key. We do things overtly that we do covertly. Regime change when it's overt is called a war. Right when it's covert action, it's called a coup. But that plausible deniability uh, keeps things from escalating. That's why uh, it's sort of a useful fiction that powers use in order to move, you know, sort of take geopolitical action without escalating the war. And there are four types of covert activities: propaganda, political action, economic covert action, and paramilitary operations. Do you have a favorite example of economic covert action? So a couple of examples of economic covert action would be destroying crops or printing counterfeit money of a foreign country to try to undermine its economy. An illegal covert action that was done on the economic realm was the mining of Nicaragua's harbors in the 1980s, which was a covert action undertaken uh, without congressional notification. Uh, but the, but the uh, intelligence community uh, undertook that. And in fact, ships from several different countries uh, ran into these mines. And uh, there were some angry letters exchanged between Barry Goldwater and the administration about what a dumb idea this was to have covert economic action to mine the harbors of Nicaragua. One of my favorite uh, couple of sentences in this book covering the chapter on covert action, and that is, quote, the good news is that intelligence and warfighting are now much more connected. The bad news is that intelligence and warfighting are now much more connected. First of all, kudos. And secondly, how so? Thank you. That's one of my favorite sentences that I wrote. So I'm glad you like that one. It's true. So what's happened since 9-11 is we've seen this tight integration of intelligence and warfighting. And that's enabled counterterrorism successes. You'll recall just a few weeks ago, um, that kind of integration led to the death of the ISIS leader. So that was a big win for the United States. But the bad news is that the more intelligence is integrated with military action, the less intelligence, particularly the CIA, can spend on preventing strategic surprise, like we talked about with Pearl Harbor. And so I think many people think that defense and intelligence is all kind of the same. But intelligence officers are trained to be gatherers. Military officers are trained to be hunters. Intelligence officers are trained to, to use information. Military officers are trained to use violence. And they're connected, but in a world where you can't distinguish one from the other, it means the CIA is spending too much time, too many resources hunting not enough time gathering and anticipating threats over the horizon. And that's a unique role for the CIA to play. It can't do everything. And the more it's sucked into doing those um, activities with the Pentagon and providing support to the warfighter on the battlefield, the less it, it is engaged in preventing warfighters from having to go to battle in the first place. An early, uh, an early chapter is titled The Education Crisis. And this comes down to 
us, the general public, being very misinformed about what goes on within the CIA, FBI, and with other intelligence agencies because of something called spytainment. That is the depiction of these organizations and the individuals who work for them by Hollywood. What does the public get most wrong about intelligence agencies as a result of spytainment? I think the public tends to get three things wrong. They tend to think that our spy agencies are running rogue, right? Their CIA is out there trying to assassinate Jason Bourne on the streets of New York. They also think that torture always works because it does on the show 24. And they think that the National Security Agency has these super sophisticated technological tools and they're tracking your every move and listening to your phone calls with your grandmother. Those three things are not true. Right, Spy agencies are not running rogue. There are oversight regimes in place. Torture does not always work. And in fact, I have examples of how uh, you know, 24 really uh, negatively influenced how we think about interrogation. Uh, and the NSA has weaknesses, not just strengths. And it's not uh, legally allowed to target Americans without a whole series of um, legal uh, protections. And 24's sway was so powerful that it actually affected the collective mindset within our military and government, too, in the 20 aughts, correct? Yes. I mean, there's this crazy moment where the dean of West Point was so worried that 24 was affecting his cadets and how they thought about how to conduct interrogations that he visited the show 24. He visited the creative team to ask them to produce some episodes where torture did not work. And so he went to the set and he was wearing his uniform and the crew thought he was an actor, not a general. I mean, it was just a crazy truth is stranger than fiction moment. Yeah, no doubt about that. Do the intelligence agencies lean into the increasing fame and glory that has come from shows like 24 and Homeland? They do. So when I went to CIA the last time in the, in the public affairs conference room, there are posters of spy-themed entertainment shows all around the walls. And you can see the CIA you know, leans into spytainment for recruiting. You can understand why. And there are some benefits to that. You know, The Spy Museum in Washington, DC uses spy-themed entertainment as a jumping off point for education. But the problem is spy-themed entertainment is often the only source of information for many Americans. And it often blurs the lines between fiction and reality in very deceiving ways. And it's not just with fiction, by the way. Why is the film Zero Dark Thirty a good example of Hollywood taking serious liberties with the supposed truth? Well, Zero Dark Thirty to me is particularly disconcerting because the movie is portrayed as a reported film, as a first draft of history. And the opening frame of that movie says, based on firsthand accounts of actual events. Now you read that and you think, sounds like a true story. Well, parts of it were true, but lots of that movie was just pure creative license, but viewers don't know the difference. And not just viewers like you and me, viewers like CIA officers. So when that movie came out, the acting director of CIA, Michael Morell, had to issue a memo to his workforce clarifying that the movie was not realistic and that the real story of the hunt for bin Laden was very different, in particular, the role of what they call enhanced interrogation techniques or really harsh interrogation methods was one of many techniques that led to bin Laden. The movie doesn't make you think that, makes you think that those techniques, those harsh techniques like waterboarding were the key to finding bin Laden, and that's not true. So when the head of the agency has to write a memo to the agency about a movie about the agency, you know entertainment isn't just entertainment. 
Amy, sensitive information is defined one of three ways as confidential, secret, or top secret. How is the information classified as such? And perhaps more importantly, who makes these decisions? So the decisions are made by people, the originating authority of the information. And what's happened over history is, you can imagine this is sort of a typical bureaucratic behavior. You won't get in trouble for overclassifying information, but you will get in trouble if you release information that you shouldn't. And so the natural tendency is to overclassify, really overclassify. And it's gotten so bad that the director of national intelligence just a couple of weeks ago had a public speech where she talked about overclassification as a major national security issue. Because when things are overclassified, they can't be shared. So, you know, we think about classification within an agency, but classification is within very specific programs. So even if you have a very high level clearance, you might not be able to have access to that particular piece of information unless you're read in, as they say, to that particular program. So these, these pieces of information get isolated and not shared because of overclassification. Chapter nine is titled, Intelligence Isn't Just for Governments Anymore. Why do you focus on nuclear threats in this chapter? Well, I focus on nuclear threats for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, it's kind of a tough case for me. You know, of all the threats you'd think about where spy agencies would corner the market, it would be nuclear threats because it's also secretive and it's states trying to develop nuclear weapons. But even here, I find that based, you know, citizen detectives and organizations outside the government are playing a large and crucial role in intelligence. And I think the second reason is, you know, I'm at Stanford and I have a number of colleagues that are nuclear security experts and they're part of this open source community. And so I had a window into this world and what it is that they're doing and the dynamics of how it operates. So I really wanted to better understand it. And I was fortunate to have colleagues that enabled me to do that. Amy, uh, you uh, detail three trends uh, that uh, have democratized nuclear threat intelligence collection and analysis. That includes rising commercial satellite quantities and capabilities, the explosion of connectivity and other open source information on the internet, and advances in automated analytics like machine learning. How has machine learning helped? Well, machine learning is enabling everyday citizens to be able to process all this imagery that commercial satellites are producing at superhuman speeds. So I have, for example, two colleagues here at Stanford that wanted to understand the economic relationship between China and North Korea. And so they said, well, let's get hundreds and hundreds of commercial satellite images of trucks crossing the border between the two countries. And we can tell a lot by how heavy the trucks are, how many there are, how often they go. But you know, it's going to take a long time to go through all of these pictures. So let's create a very simple machine learning, learning algorithm. Neither one of them is a computer scientist. This is sort of off the shelf basic stuff. So they did that. And the machine learning algorithm processed those photos at a speed that was, I think it did in 20 minutes, and the human analyst, it took 40 hours, right? So, or, or more than 40 hours, actually. So you're talking about orders of magnitude difference and how fast somebody can process a ton of data. And that's a huge advantage for not just intelligence analysts, but anybody analyzing data. All right, we're gonna bring things full circle for this last question, Amy. We started with Russia. We're going to end with Russia and the current operation going on with the Ukraine and the response of the US and the rest of the world. What is your prediction with what happens with how we handle Russia in the coming days, weeks, and months? 
Oh boy. <laughs> well, I'll give you what you know, my sort of outsider's perspective of I think what, what we see so far. What we see so far is the Biden administration making a clear red line about NATO. So it's clear that Putin, as the intelligence suspected, was moving into Ukraine. The question is whether he's going to hold Kiev hostage for concessions from NATO in the West or whether he's just going to occupy the whole country. And then the next question is, does he stop there? Is he going to see whether he can move into NATO countries and reverse the sort of post-Cold War international order? Now, what we've seen so far from the Biden administration is a very clear red line. Not one inch of NATO is going to go unprotected. And the challenge there is, you know, talk is cheap. You got to back up the red line with activities that show you mean business. And so what we're going to look for, what I'm going to look for in the days ahead is what are the actions that give credibility to that commitment to defend NATO as our Article 5 treaty commitments mandate that we do. Do you think China is taking this opportunity to do more in the way of uh, grabbing hold of Taiwan once again? I think China is probably watching very closely uh, what our capabilities are and what our resolve is with this conflict. And we know, of course, in the past weeks and months, China has significantly ramped up its aggressive activities vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, uh, flying in its airspace, harassing in its waters, developing much more sophisticated naval capabilities. It's no secret that China wants to reunify with Taiwan. And the question is, will it do so by force? And will it do so by force in the near term, which I think is of rising concern to policymakers in Washington. So I'm sure Xi Jinping is watching very carefully what we're saying and what we're doing and how seriously we take the defense of our allies and partners in Europe. Amy B. Ziegert is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman uh, Spoli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University, a contributing writer for The Atlantic and an author. Her newest book is titled Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Amy, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this crucial book. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.